When police were called to the swanky Midtown apartment in New York City on June 9, 1929, they weren't too concerned. It was the Roaring Twenties in America, and the socialites didn't let Prohibition put a damper on their partying ways. But when the NYPD arrived at the top floor apartment at 51st and 5th Avenue, what they found wasn't a party, but a dead silent movie actor and his Broadway star girlfriend. But who would want to bring the celebrity couple's life to a tragic end? This is the story of fame, fortune, love, loss, booze, and Broadway. This is the murder of Margaret Lawrence. Hey y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. And I'm her daughter, Haley Fish. And this is the rescue dog, Scotty. <laughs> and welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. Yeehaw. <laughs> <laughs> We've got welcome, a welcome, welcome. We've got a special show today. I have our daughter here in the studio, the lovely Haley Fish. Hey, y'all. Does <laughs> <laughs> that, that suit the situation? Yeah, hey. you're allowed to say hey, y'all. Hey, y'all. You are. Well, n- yes, go for it. Get back into your southern roots. My Kentucky roots. Yes, your Kentucky roots. But okay. Haley's been home for a few days in Kentucky. And while she was here, I coaxed her into RP Music Studios to do the podcast, to do Hitch to Homicide, because we promised we were going to start adding people into the podcast. Haley's the first one. And I chose a Broadway case today just for you oh shucks because if you don't know already our daughter Haley fish has been on broadway is on broadway and is a singer actor dancer yep extraordinaire (laughs) i'm very proud i'm a proud i'm a proud ex dance mom so thanks mom but i thought everybody might be interested in Let's talk a little bit about you quickly before we get into the whole case about what it is that you have done and your career and how you got there. Because there might be other aspiring Broadway stars out there. Yeah, of course. Um, well, I grew up dancing. You know, I was a competition dancer. Not quite like Dance Moms, but... Not, no, it was not, never not, like, not dance like Dance Moms. moms. <laughs> Don't put me in that category. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. Well, I've just, you know, the general audience, I feel like, yes. maybe has seen that show. So I grew up competing. And then when I was a teenager, I started doing the musicals, taking them more seriously. I went to NYU as an acting major. I graduated I made my Broadway debut in Cats as Rumpelteaser. Uh, I did Hello, Dolly after that, Kiss Me, Kate, and currently am in and out of the building at The Music Man on Broadway with um, Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster. So I have to tell this little story about Haley's grandmother who asked me to ask her if Hugh Jackman had shown her his finger knives. (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) Meaning the Wolverine. But you have said that he's very nice. He is. He's the nicest person in the world. That's good to hear. He really is. Well, we are extremely proud of Haley. Yes, we are. She's always kind of been our little starlet around the house, for sure. (laughs) Sure, if that's what you want to call it. Yeah, singing. She started out singing off key, My Heart Will Go On, but now she sings on Broadway. So, yeah. <laughs> it's not always on key, though. <laughs> yes, no, you're supposed to say that you always it sing is. on key. Of course, of course. Well, we're glad that you're with us today. Everyone else that's with us today, we're so glad you're here as well. Yes, we are. Wherever you're listening, be sure to like, rate, and review. That helps other people to find us. And you can easily join our Facebook group, The In Laws and Outlaws, which, by the way, Haley helped yes. name. Oh, yeah, I did. Yes, because I, I said we need a new name for our group for Hitch to Homicide. And she texted me back, In-Laws and Outlaws. And I was like, oh, I love it. Perfect. So, ding, ding, ding. Perfect. Ding, <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Oh, stop it. I know. I know. Well, I'm going to jump right into this. This is a very old case. It's very interesting. The whole thing is just filled with factoids. You know how I love history. You know how I love to, like, tell a good story and, like, go off on a small tangent. I'll try not to do too many of those today. I promise everything. At least I thought it was very interesting. But before we get started, I'm going to thank some sources, the New York Daily News, the New York Times, Internet Broadway Database, the Washington Times, Playbill, Chicago Tribune, thelambs.org, and Performing Arts Archive, and the Bettswood Film Archive. Let's do it. Margaret Whitaker Lawrence is born on August 2nd. 1889 in Trenton, New Jersey. Her parents are Eva Camp Lawrence and Albert Whitaker Moore. She has two sisters, Emma and Starr, S-T-A-R-R. Oh, I love that. I loved that name. Her mother will remarry a man named George Lawrence, and he adopts the girls as his own. I'm uncertain what happened to Albert, but the obituaries are a little sketchy in the late 1800s for sure. Um, George Lawrence is a real estate operator out of New Jersey, what today we would call a broker. Okay. Mm. And I also read where Margaret's mom had Pennsylvania Quaker roots, which I thought was interesting. Because her daughter's going to become a stage star, and she's a Quaker. Yeah, sort of the opposite of the Quaker. (laughs) Kind of, yeah, kind of the opposite. Yeah, this was a long time ago, so it's hard to keep up with some of the facts, and they're different in different papers and on different days in the same newspaper. So if we think journalism is screwed up now, let me just tell you, searching through all this old microfilm, they really like to sensationalize a lot of things. And you like your microfilm. And I do love my microfilm. You know I love going into an old newspaper where i can see shoes at bloomingdale's for a dollar 98 so yeah one dollar 98 cents if only if only (laughs) margaret started her stage career in 1906 at the tender age of 17 in allentown pennsylvania as a member of the orpheum stock company and the orpheum theater opened on the 27th of august 1906 as a vaudeville theater and up to that time allentown only had the lyric theater and several nickelodeons as theaters And the Orpheum opened with a -a two-a-day policy, which meant two vaudeville programs presented each day. And the Orpheum also had its own theater stock 
company with young actors that came from New York to present plays that were popular in New York City at the time. It presented live variety shows, and the Orpheum mixed jugglers, song and dance teams, and acrobats, comedians, and other live performers. That's cool. That sounds fun. So they would bring plays from the city. Yes. Sort of like a tour, essentially. Yes. Or... But it's usually younger actors that would oh. come from New York City to Allentown okay. to do the show. Right. Got it. Okay. It yeah. was a tryout. Yeah. Summer stock. It, they said that Allentown was a tryout venue for vaudeville acts. And for those who did well, they went on to major cities like Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. Mm. And famous performers such as Eddie Cantor, Fred and Adele Astaire, Jack Benny, Bing Crosby, Buster Keaton, and Will Rogers all played the Orpheum in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Wow. Nice. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> January 2nd, 1911, Margaret makes her Broadway debut. The play is called Overnight, and she is starring as Elsie. The show is at the Hatchet Theater, which is at 254 West 42nd Street. The house was 880 seats. This theater is located where the AMC Theaters and Madame Trussard's is now on 42nd Street. Madame Tussaud. Thank you. Bless you. <laughs> Wait, okay, so... Madam, what is it? Tussaud? Madam Tussaud. Oh, God, okay. I hope I'm right about that. The wax people. Yes, the wax people. So, did they tear the building down? Did they tear that theater down, or... I think the structure is still there, but okay. there's nothing in it right now. Except I did for double wax check. people? <laughs> no, it's near the wax people. Oh, I see. Okay. And the big AMC theaters that we used to go to all the time that's like 15 floors high. Yeah, you have to take a lot of escalators. A lot of escalators just to see one Napoleon movie. Dynamite. Where I, we saw Napoleon Dynamite famously, many years ago. Famously did see Napoleon Dynamite Everybody there. needs to know that, yeah. Of course. It's also in 1911, at the age of 22, that Margaret meets and marries Orson D. Munn. Orson is born in 1883 in New York City to Henry and Annie. Orson is a prominent patent attorney in New York City, but he's also the grandson of the original publisher of Scientific America. He's also a patent attorney at Munn & Company, and his grandfather purchased the six-month-old Scientific America for less than $1,000 with a subscription of 200 people. So really taking a chance on a magazine, but comes from a family of patent attorneys. So it would make sense that they're doing patent attorneys and its inventions and Scientific America is the publication that they buy. Interesting. Mm. Which yes. is just in its infancy at the time. Right. Okay. Orson Munn is a socialite in New York City, and he meets Margaret, sees her on stage, and thinks she's the that's the girl for me. Uh, a classic romance. So he's showmance, like, if you will. It's a showmance. He's like the, you know, this well-to-do man out mm. in the audience. Mm -hmm. She's beautiful and talented. And then on December 14th, at the home of her mother in Rahway, New Jersey, Margaret marries Orson. Wow. That's a cute. I mean, okay, wait, do we have any plot line what is this play what was the play about what elsie is her character do we know what happens <laughs> do you know show? <laughs> no we don't and i'm gonna tell you she is in so many shows i'm gonna list all of them because okay. i got them all from playbill there's only one that has a review and i am gonna give it to you <laughs> yes <laughs> but many of these shows would start and then they would close in like three weeks so huh. these are plays that are like put up by people and the houses are a thousand seats. So they would get the financing. But if it didn't get an audience reaction or people didn't like it, 
they close the show in two weeks. Hmm. Wow. So how quickly do they close the show now on Broadway? Well, it kind of depends. If it is not great. I mean, I've seen shows close after 30 performances after they open. So So they've done done previews already. So maybe there's a a few weeks of previews. And then they get in some shows. I mean, there... There are still shows that close. So it still happens. It still happens. It It still happens. happens. But I I feel like the golden age of Broadway, you know, the 40s, 50s, what we're used to now is more similar to the golden age of Broadway. But this is 1929. In the 1920s. So it looked very different. It wasn't wasn't the same. It's kind of exciting. I take it back. This is actually 1911 because she's only 22. Oh, okay. But yes, still. Yeah. And there are way more plays than musicals that go up in New York City. And I had no idea. Well, a 1911 Actors' Equity, I believe, was founded in that year. So Um, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to give you that little golden Uh nugget of information in just a little bit. So hang on. Sorry. Sorry, I jumped ahead. No, hang on. Hang on to your wig. (laughs) (laughs) Hanging. Okay. But he marries, Orson marries Margaret up, and she quits the stage and promptly has two beautiful daughters, Elizabeth and Louise. And Margaret also begins to serve on all these mini advisory boards of all these charitable organizations, which makes sense because her husband is well-to-do and, you know, so she's serving on all those. Yeah, the wifely duties of... Exactly. uh, I found in the microfilm stories about dances at the Meadow Club in Southampton, the Garden Club in Southampton. They were included in all the social events in New York City, and there were accounts even of the Barrymores spending time within at their home. Well, fancy. So very fancy. Very fancy. By May of... 1915, Margaret was no longer on the stage, but she was going to shows. And I even saw a newspaper article where she was a guest at a theater party where they went to the Princess Theater to see Nobody Home. That was the name of the show. Okay. Margaret and Orson were also a part of a benefit planned for the American aviators in the French Army. It was a show by the Washington Square Players and a bunch of Japanese dancers. And they also attended events for NYU that were held at the Plaza Hotel for things like the School of Law. So just really New York City socialites. Nice. Yes. They're all over the place. You're laughing. I don't know why. Well, because you said you brought up NYU and I was like, oh, yes, the Tisch School of the Arts. Then it was the School of Law, which that made me laugh for some reason. Yeah, no, they weren't. Well, he's oh. an attorney. I, yeah, that makes sense. Whatever. But but yes, but she is an actor. And so they're supporting yeah. the school of law, but not Tisch School for the Arts. Mm. But then something happens and we don't know what it is. It'd be really easy to speculate. Maybe she got tired of the socialite scene. Maybe she missed the stage. Maybe being a mom wasn't what she really wanted. Maybe she wasn't fulfilled. But whatever the reason, Margaret goes back to the stage. Now, she stays married, but she is back on stage because the bright lights were calling her name. That seems like it might have been scandalous in that time. Yeah. Well, it was a little scandalous that such a socialite would pick out an actor. Well, yeah. Nothing that... nothing against you. No, no, no. I, but... <laughs> but back in the day. Yeah, no, it was we were similar to like the ladies of the night. We were the ladies of the evening. <laughs> I hope not. For goodness well, not, sake. Not, 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 not like that. But it was in the same category of of people, artists, yeah. bohemia. Yes, know. yes. There just wasn't a respect factor. There was no respect factor, yeah. exactly. But the bright lights are calling her name, and she makes her return to Broadway on September 9th, 1918, in a show called Tea for Three. 
<laughs> it opened at Maxine Elliott's Theater on West 39th Street, and she took her next show, Wedding Bells, which opened on November 9th, 1918, at the Harris Theater. And during this show, she meets a man named Wallace Eddinger. So if you're keeping track at home, if you're keeping score at home, she makes her Broadway return September 9th, and she's doing a new show November 9th. So these oh. shows are opening oh, yeah. and closing yeah. quickly. Well, she's booked, honey. Apparently. <laughs> she's booked and blessed. She's booked and blessed. <laughs> <laughs> so interested to know, like, what was the salary for that? I, It's, you know, it's well, a, I'm gonna a totally give different you, world. But. It is a different world, but I am going to give you a salary for her a little bit later on. So you're getting, are you in my head? Is I, this because you're my DNA? But yes. you're really asking a lot of questions before I get to <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought I was supposed to. <laughs> No, you are supposed to. You are supposed to. (laughs) Okay, continue. But when she does the show Wedding Bells, she meets Wallace Eddinger. And Wallace had been a child star. He was a child actor. He went by the name Wally. And Wally got famous for playing Little Lord Fauntleroy. What? Which also starred, (laughs) I'm not even kidding you, which also starred (laughs) Elsie Leslie, who was this little girl who was considered America's first child star and the highest paid and most popular child actor of her era. Wow. <laughs> what, what was his character name again? Little Lord Fauntleroy. <laughs> I thought my last name was bad. I'm going to call somebody that. Yeah, well, go for it. <laughs> go for it. Now, Wally's parents, both of his parents were actors. Their names were Lawrence and May. And he had an older sister. And in 1912, Wallace married Ivy Lee Moore. And then he began to make silent movies. He made two silent movies. Mm -hmm. One was called The Great Diamond Robbery. Mm -hmm. And the second was A Gentleman of Leisure. But Wallace preferred the stage. And I'm sure that's true of most actors. They either really like the camera or they really like the stage. Well, it was the silent film era first. So it was all picture. You weren't you know, the talkies hadn't happened yet. No, not yet. So I would imagine that if you were a trained actor, you would want to perform on stage because people could actually hear you say stuff. <laughs> you know, and that you make a really good point because I have done a I have done a true crime podcast on Roscoe Arbuckle, mm-hmm. Fatty Arbuckle. Yeah. And he even said at the time that stage actors had way more respect than film actors. Right. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't, I don't know if the tables have turned, but there is now a lot more fame and notoriety that goes with a film actor versus just a stage actor. Sure, You sure. reach a larger audience. Well, and plus, I even wrote in my notes, you have the audience giving you energy, too. Right. So it's a different type of acting, I mean, oh, I would think. because uh, you're, 100%. Yeah, because yeah, you're getting the energy from the, the audience. But he really, he really preferred the stage. Wallace, Wally preferred the stage. Okay. And however this happens, Margaret and Wallace fall in love while working on this show called Wedding Bells. Now, Wally's got a wife and two sons who live in California. Okay. Mm. But he has fallen in love with Margaret. So earlier I said that Margaret and Orson was a showman's, but actually this is a showman's. They this met is- They met doing a show together. So that's called a showman's. This is a showman's, yes. Suffice it to say, you met your boyfriend, Will. Yes. It was also a showman. Well, right, but both of us were single, very single. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody's Nobody's married with kids. No, 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 no. None of that. Okay, yeah. Good catch. Good call. Good call. I just want to set the record straight. Yeah. 
1921, Margaret opened in Transplanting Jean at the Court Theater on West 48th, a theater that's still there today. Yeah. It's owned by the Schubert Organization. It sure is. In 1922, Margaret is really busy because Orson Munn is going to divorce Margaret, and her personal life is a little bit of a shambles while she manages the breakup of her marriage. But before we get to that, she scores three Broadway shows, including Lawful Larceny at the Theater Republic, which is now the new Victory Theater. Mm-hmm. She also starred in Endless Chain at the George M. Cohen Theater, which was right in the middle of what is now Times Square. It's gone. It was demolished in 1938. And then Secrets opened Christmas Day, 1922, and it opened at the Fulton Theater, which became the Helen Hayes Theater. Mm-hmm. In 1955, it was demolished in 1982. It is now the spot of the Marriott and the Marriott Marquis Theater. (laughs) Wow. She was busy. So that's where all of these places are. Well, they're haunted. It's like it's like burying it's or it's like building something on a Native American burial ground. Yeah, I mean I, I'm sure that's true. Yeah. But when Secrets leaves Broadway, it goes on tour, and when it reaches the National Theater in Washington D.C., the newspaper did a story, a human interest story on Margaret. The title: Miss Lawrence has a hobby for old plays. <laughs> They call her one of the busiest actresses on the American stage, and they say that in private life, Mrs. Orson D. Munn, and mother of two beautiful children, has a huge hobby, which is, other than her charitable organizations, it's collecting old plays. She has one of the most complete libraries of its kind in New York City. Wow. You know, that's that's what they wanted to talk about is her instead of instead of like Miss Thang be stepping out. It's like she loves to collect plays. Yes. And she's Mrs. Orson Munn. Right. And they're in the middle of getting a divorce. They are. But it's very quiet. The divorce is all going on behind the scenes because he's a socialite. Yes. You couldn't stand the rumors. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. But here is her quote. And I think this is pretty telling. Quote, energy is like love in one respect. The more one gives, the more one has to give. I believe in many activities. They round out a life. They keep it from falling in a groove. I don't like people who live one life as it were. I have no patience either with many people who complain that they haven't time for this or that. A few haven't, of course, because of the circumstances of their lives. But there is infinite time for everything for most of us. Enthusiasm finds time. Indifference loses it, end quote. Well, hmm. and I thought she's very she's a smart chick and she she's is. very well spoken and yeah. very passionate and, and truly bohemian, right. if you will, like an artist. Yes, and very, like. and she's very much a feminist. Hang on. Oh, sorry. Okay. Margaret believed that a woman's place is the place for her, quote, brains and energy that make her, end quote. It could be the home or the stage or both. Ability, like money, makes many places for itself. The article also states that her husband, Orson, shares her conviction that talent was meant to be used in the proper direction. Okay. I love that. And certainly Margaret showed 100 years ago that, quote, a woman may shine in many spheres, end quote. That's what she said. Nice. Hmm. Wow. And was I, she was she the first well-received working mother? No. I mean, probably. You mean maybe. on Broadway? I, maybe. As she an was actress, one maybe. of them. Yeah, she was a working mom renaissance woman. Yeah. The records show that Margaret divorces Orson in 1922. It also said that the divorce happened in secret with her filing charges out of state. Hmm. 
So the divorce wasn't, she was married in Jersey, but she filed for divorce outside of New York. Hmm. You can interpret that how you will. I don't, well, I I don't know how to interpret that. I I don't think anyone knows because the details of the divorce were kept secret. I mean, he's an attorney, he's a patent attorney, but still, he has kept, he's a socialite. So he's keeping everything under wraps. Maybe he cheated. Maybe she cheated. She has met Wally. They did a show together. Mm. She really likes Wally that you were saying there's the showmance. So, but did she have the showmance because he had somebody on the side? Hmm, interesting. So whether the paper had it wrong or the divorce wasn't final until the end of the year and they held on to this notion that she was Mrs. Orson Munn in December of 1922 when this article comes out, on top of being stage actor Margaret Lawrence, who just happened to be having an affair with Wallace Edinger. It's all kind of very blurry, okay? Yeah, and mm-hmm. confusing. Then in November of 1924, six years after she meets Wallace, these two marry in Los Angeles. In His Arms was her next show. It's also at the Fulton. It opened October 13th, 1924 and closed November 1st. And I found a review for this show that states, quote, gifted comedian helps pleasant comedy a lot. <laughs> so there's her review. <laughs> That's the nicest review. She was a real she was really funny on stage, apparently. That was her thing. She really knew how to give a joke. She had really good comedic timing. She Mm. was funny and people enjoyed seeing her on stage. It's hard to be funny. It's hard to be effortlessly funny. People will try to be funny on stage and that's and it doesn't actually inherently happen. not funny. It makes it worse. So being funny on stage is a hard, well, hard here, thing to do. Here's the quote from the uh, reviewer. Quote, there's not an awful lot to in his arms at the Fulton, but there doesn't have to be much to any comedy that embraces Margaret Lawrence or in which Margaret Lawrence is fittingly embraced. She is the satisfying star, the most gifted of the younger comedians, and the most deft. None can turn a laugh more skillfully than she, nor can any convince an audience more completely of their own desirables as a heroine. She plays equally well with laughs and tears, end quote. The Meryl Streep of the she, era. Honestly, <laughs> the for Meryl real. Streep of the time. For real. Yale School of Drama. There it is. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. She's the luckiest girl in the world, and it seems like. Mm, you might not think that, but this is when? a true crime podcast. So, yeah. I, I feel like that makes for a better story because her life is seemingly perfect it's she's pretty at least to me who's an actor who i'm like i would love to have a review like that yeah 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 shall we join the ladies opened on january 13th 1925 at the empire theater this one is gone too shall we join the ladies ran for only two weeks the next year she starred as isabel in the show isabel margaret opened in the heaven tappers the Heaven Tappers what? in March 1927 at the Forest Theater, which is now the Eugene O'Neill Theater. Right. Yeah. And there she meets Lewis Benison. And these two are going to open this show in San Diego and then bring it to Broadway. And in the Heaven Tappers, Lewis and Margaret play a pair of doomed lovers. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> That's called foreshadowing. Oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Now, Lewis 
was born on October 13th in Oakland, California to Andrew and Kate. His dad was Canadian-born and had moved to California to be a gold miner. Really? Wow. This is still like the gold This, this is, is like still right the gold rush. The gold yeah. rush. That's, that's yeah. crazy. When he's a teen, Lewis works five years as a cowboy on the Anchor <laughs> J Ranch near the California and Nevada border. And this is going to help him with his film career as... A cowboy. Nice. It's a little unclear when he took his first role, but a newspaper article in May of 1921 states that he came into his acting career when he appeared with Leslie Carter in a road show called The Heart of Maryland, which means he made his stage debut before he was 20. <laughs> okay. Now, Lewis and his brother Andrew both appeared as members of the Harry Bishop Stock Company at Ye Liberty Playhouse in Oakland, and he also worked for the Morosco Stock Company and appeared in shows in San Francisco and L.A. So these stock companies, they were like groups of people. So that made me think of the director, David O. Russell, who has usually has put like together Amy Adams and Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence. And he likes to keep that same group of people and he uses them in different Movies. Quentin Tarantino does the mm-hmm. same thing, but that's what made me think of like. Well, it, it's they're they're the traveling the group stock of, companies. Yeah, yeah. it's the same format as like the traveling troop of players back in Shakespearean time, exactly. Elizabethan times. Yeah, they would yeah, travel yeah. around and do plays. Same thing. Same thing. It, it also, I mean, you could think of those big studios that they had their people that were on contract yes, with them. that's true. And that's who they would make all their films with. Yeah. Every, they owned the actors instead of the actors making their own right. decisions. Right. A lot has changed. A lot has changed. I know. So in his 20s, Lewis mostly does live theater, but at the age of 31, he lands a role in a moving picture. In the summer of 1914, he played the part of Dr. Clifford, (laughs) here we go, a venereal disease specialist whose patient commits suicide after passing on syphilis to his wife and child. I wish that everyone could see my jaw on the floor right now. That is the role of a lifetime. What is the, what? The name of the controversial play was called Damaged Goods. And to (laughs) which I say, uh, duh. Yeah. I can't imagine pitching that play in a room of producers. Like, it'll be great. Produce this play. Somebody did it. And his success in this role landed him in the same part in a film version of the play later that same year. So it was so successful in that room for live action (laughs) that they took it to the screen. And this production of the American Film Company shot in a Los Angeles hospital and showing actual syphilis victims was a smash hit at theater box offices and helped Benison land his second movie role the following year as the first of three husbands who marry the leading lady in Pretty Mrs. Smith, a production of the Morosco Photo Play Company. Okay. But yeah. that was a lot of information. It in really that was. Sentence. None of these movies are even around today, but he he's really not Lewis is not making an attempt at this point to pursue a career in the movies because his first love is theater. Mm. But he gets cast in a role, The Unchastened Woman, which opens at New York's 39th Street Theater in the fall of 1915. And this play was Lewis's first outstanding New York success. So he'd kind of been this cowboy out doing movies, and now he's in the real theater. Mm. It was after The Unchastened Woman ended its run early in 1916 that Benison first took up the role of Johnny Wiggins in Johnny Get Your Gun. Now, this is a a role he's going to play over and over and over again. 
So Lewis Benison, this Johnny Get Your Gun, when its successful run ended in July, he took the play on tour and received considerable acclaim for his efforts. And they loved him so much as this Johnny Wiggins in Johnny Get Your Gun, the Bettswood Film Company offered him a contract to make a series of six cowboy films (laughs) at the Bettswood Studios. And as much as Benson loved the theater, the salary he was offered to appear in the films was too good to turn down. Well, yeah. And I was thinking, today, television, movies, pays more than stage. 100%. Yeah. Well, you reach a larger audience, so you can that makes sense. Make that makes more sense. Money. But Lewis arrives for work at this Bettswood studio in the summer of 1918, and he's accompanied by his wife of 13 years, Frances, and their nine-year-old daughter, Mary Ann. Now, the studio heavily promoted both him and his films even before the first scenes had been shot. And after he was put under contract, they put up this whole press tour praising his appearance, that he was this good-looking guy, he had this million-dollar smile— And this is what they said, quote, picture Douglas Fairbanks, his stature increased and his features very much improved, end quote. That's how they sold him. Wow. (laughs) Wait. Yeah. Picture, wait, think about this guy and then make him more attractive in your mind. He's taller and And better looking. And that's who we're talking about. Exactly. That is the most indirect way (laughs) to say that. And that's what they were doing. They were hoping to capitalize on his already famous smile. And the studio even attempted, albeit unsuccessfully, to market a brand of cigarettes called Benison Smiles. Hmm. So this guy's kind of a big deal. Okay, so Louis Benison is kind of a big deal. This is putting him on par with Margaret. Yes, is this where we're Easily puts him on par with Margaret. So these are our stars of the day. Yes. Yes. He does a movie called Oh Johnny. And when that's finished, he immediately begins filming Sandy Burke of the U-Bar U. Then he filmed Speedy Mead. And the fourth film he did in the summer of 1918 was A Road Called Straight. All four of these were filmed in three months. Wow. And in the spring of 1919, he starts his fifth film called High Pockets. And his final cowboy movie with Bettswood Films was called A Misfit Earl. (laughs) (laughs) By the time he's finished movie number five, he's ready to be back in the theater. His first love. And his first production is called Dear Mabel, which had songs written by George Gershwin. I love Gershwin. And it ran in Baltimore. And then it went to Philadelphia, where it promptly... Closed. It never made it to Broadway. Hmm. So Lewis revives. I know. Lewis revives his old role as Johnny Wiggins in Johnny Get Your Gun. It's kind of like his, that's like his comfort zone. He can always make money doing Johnny Get Your Gun. And he's going to do this a couple of times. He tours the United States with the show and he even goes to London where he plays this role, Johnny Wiggins in Johnny Get Your Gun for a year. Wow. Oh. But they rebranded it. Of course, they didn't call it rebranding, but they retitled it <laughs> The Cow Person. <laughs> Good call. No way. In, the in English. London. The Cow the Person. The Cow Person. And Lewis has taken his wife with him on all of this, but his daughter Marianne is home in the States with her grandmother, Kate, in California. Now, for the next 10 years, they just leave the kids behind. I'm still stuck on the cow person. The cow person. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. For the next 10 years, Lewis is going to have a crazy schedule, overlapping performances in one play with rehearsals for another. And he's also touring all this time. And his career has plateaued. And all of it has taken a toll on his mental health as well as his physical health. He feels like his looks are beginning to fade. His hair is falling out because guess what? 
Lewis is now wearing a toupee. Oh, don't nice. do that. His wife has gone back to California to live with their daughter, and Lewis has taken refuge inside a bottle. He's drinking a lot. You know, he was a theater guy who then got a movie deal, but it didn't really go anywhere. And he goes back to the theater and he kind of has a flop, but he has to go back to his old standby, which he does. Then he goes to London, but he's not getting better roles and he's not becoming a bigger star. He's feeling maybe a little washed up, yeah, feeling a little washed up and he's getting older and he's losing his hair. And now he's wearing a toupee. Is that a squirrel on your head, or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> uh, yeah. Meanwhile, Margaret, in 1928, is starring in The Behavior of Mrs. Crane at Erlanger's Theater, which is now the St. James Theater. Okay. Hmm. And on October 2nd, 1928, Margaret opened the show Possession at the Booth Theater. Now, by November of 1928, Margaret has filed divorce papers she wants out of her marriage with Wallace Ettinger. How long had they been married? I want to say six years. Okay. But hang on. She files these divorce papers. She wants out of her marriage. And the headline in the newspaper is Wallace Ettinger, Canadian, and Margaret Lawrence, actress, co-starred in Wedding Bells in 1924. And now they are starting a less happy comedy, which will be known as the Alimony Blues. Oh, wow. Wait, why did they have to qualify him as a Canadian? Canadian? <laughs> yeah. That's just how these old newspapers work. Uh, it's, yeah. Just getting the important information the out important there. information. But it says, yesterday, Miss Lawrence filed suit for divorce, accusing Wally of playing hearts with an unidentified sweetie in a New York apartment last May 10th. So she caught him. She caught him with Playing somebody. hearts with an unidentified She's sweetie. Playing hearts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> God, exactly. it's so like 19, bada bing, bada boom, 1920s. Because mm-hmm. like. <laughs> don't forget, Margaret and Wally were married in Los Angeles shortly after they co-starred together. And Wally divorced his first wife, Ivy, to be with her. Yeah. This is... The showmances. And you know what? They persist to the the, the modern age. Do they? Yes, okay, of course I they do. I don't want details, but okay. But the second week of January 1929... Wally is in Pittsburgh doing a tour of a show called The Bow Strategium. Wally arrives in Pittsburgh for the show. He doesn't feel so great, and it gets worse. And then, boom, Wally is at Presbyterian Hospital. He's got pneumonia. Uh-oh. Oh. He died early the next morning, oh, oh. January 8th. And I read that actor Taylor Holmes was, quote, rushed from New York, end quote, to take his part. Oh. The headline in the paper... <laughs> Wallace Ettinger, star stage, plays last role in Battle Against Pneumonia, and Margaret Lawrence is widow instead of divorcee. Wow. Oh, my God. So they really, like, dig deep into everybody's life and just well, put it in the newspaper. Yeah, I mean, is it any different than what's happening now? It's like the, the headlines are also gossip. True. It's a gossip column as well. True. You know, they're, they're telling you the facts with also some scanty details. Gotta sell papers. You got, yeah. Well, Gotta sell papers. It really, it's like the musical Chicago. This is <laughs> A little bit. You hear the headlines and you're like, no one says that. A little That's bit. actually what they sound they like. They really did do yeah. that. Now, there's going to be a public scandal over the estate of Wallace. And Wallace's mother is going to take Margaret to court for the $25,000 estate. And while doing so, she accuses Margaret of being a drunk and being drunk in front of her daughters, and the press will eat it up. Scandal, Mm. scandal, scandal. Drama, drama, drama. (laughs) (laughs) Sell, sell, sell. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The courts determined that the charges were, quote, not proved. So even though 
She wanted a divorce because she caught him with somebody in May 10th, right? Right. Mm -hmm. It never happened. The divorce wasn't final, and she got everything. $25,000 estate. In the fall of 1927, Louis Benison and Margaret Lawrence tour Australia together in a production of Robert Emmett Sherwood's new play, The Road to Rome. Okay. Hmm. These two had a week-long train trip to the West Coast and a three-week ocean voyage from San Francisco to Sydney, where they apparently discussed more than just theater. Mm -hmm. Wow. And then they spend several months in Australia Hmm. before returning from their tour in January of 1928. Later that year, Lewis Benison toured the West Coast in yet another revival of Johnny Get Your Gun. He's back at it again. He also made a short one-reel sound film for Vitaphone. It was called The Reward. And everybody kind of thought that his need to recycle Johnny again combined with this Vitaphone appearance, it kind of suggested that his stage career was over and he was maybe trying to explore becoming just an actor and what was this newly emerging thing called talking films. And we all know how unsuccessful talking films have been. <laughs> God. Yeah. Wait, okay, so he, he this is his toupee era, right? This is his I'm washed up and I have a yes. <laughs> dead animal on my head era. <laughs> yes. Okay. But at the same time, he's done this whole tour with Margaret in right. Australia uh-huh. after this. Yes. Right. But yes, he's drinking a lot. He feels like his career has plateaued because he's not on Broadway. He's not in movies. Mm. You know, he's aging, and he's going to Australia to make some money. He's on tour <laughs> all the way in Australia yeah. trying to make money. Right. Yeah. Back in New York City, Margaret Lawrence's career is starting to go the way of Lewis's. It's starting to collapse. She was offered the leading role in Edgar Selwyn's comedy called Possession, which opened on Broadway on the 2nd of October, 1928. But after two weeks, overwhelmed by her personal problems and drinking heavily, she suddenly dropped out of the play. Oh. Now, there are people who think that she really kind of had a downturn after Wally died of pneumonia. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, that would be... So I think she loved him. I think he cheated on her. She files for divorce. Then he gets sick and dies. So she was heartbroken before. Then she was heartbroken again because Mm. he died. And then she had to go through the whole thing with his family to keep the estate, the $25,000 yeah. estate, right. yeah. where his mother dragged her name through the mud again. Mm. So she's been the socialite. She's been this Broadway star. And people have been dragging her name through the mud over and over and over again. And I think that she started drinking to numb the pain. Well, I mean, I would I would imagine maybe some other... She's in show business, so maybe some other things were sure. also in her system. But No, I don't think so. I really? think it was just alcohol. Okay. Just, I, I'm almost positive it was, it was only alcohol because they really loved to drag her name through the mud. And I think if there was anything else... We would know about it. It would have been in the paper. It re- Opioids. It really would. It would have. It would have been in the paper. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's and the, And the newspaper said Margaret Lawrence, fallen star of Edgar Selwyn's production, Possession, was suspended by the Actors' Equity Association for six months. She was also fined two weeks' salary, and the banishment of Miss Lawrence from the actor's equity for six months was decided by the Equity Council, Mm -hmm. and Selwyn brought the charges against Miss Lawrence after she took, quote, French leave, end quote, 
which is a mid-18th century saying, which it just means that it's derived from the French custom of leaving a dinner or ball without saying goodbye to the host or hostess. Oh, so an Irish exit Yeah, as well. a French leave. Yeah. Oh, a French leave. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, to escape in the style of the English. Yeah, but you can't not show up to work. You can't do that. She took French leave of possession on October 22nd, 1928. And in agitated tones, she called Selwyn that afternoon and told him that she had been in a car accident. So agitated tones. She's very upset with him. Mm -hmm. She calls and says, the reason I didn't show up is because I was in a car accident. Mm. Well, and it's not it's not like now where you can text your stage manager and be like, hey, I'm feeling a little sicky today. Can't come in. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the director thinks her excuse is hanky. And mm. what they found out when they visited Lawrence was, quote, kept for the ears of the equity councilman, end quote. Hmm. So they oh. never disclose anything. Wow. Officials of the Actors' Equity Association wouldn't comment on the charges, but the equity decree would not apply to any activities with movies or vaudeville. Hmm. And the oh yeah, so she can she just can't do an equity production. She can do a movie or she can do vaudeville. Okay. And the newspaper pointed out that Janine Eagles, who was barred the month before, had been doing a vaudeville show for her quote bread and butter end quote. So vaudeville, I mean. That's a step below. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Definitely okay. a step below. But the newspaper said Miss Lawrence, intimate friends relate, is not very concerned about her, quote, three squares because she lives luxuriously on Park Avenue. Mm. And she did. Mm. Oh. With Lewis Bennison. She's living with Lewis. Oh. Off and on, these two are living together. Hmm. He's still married. They're living together. In love and living together. Oh, goodness gracious. In the spring of 1929, Lewis made what was to be his final visit to the West Coast to perform in a play. He visited his wife and daughter before heading back to New York to the apartment he was now sharing with Margaret Lawrence. In May, Lewis and Margaret appeared together in a vaudeville sketch, which turned out to be such a flop that it was withdrawn from the program after three performances. Oh, yikes. So they're trying to, like, do more. And they're putting their act together, together. But uh, also, they're both drinking a lot. And they're both drinking a lot, and things aren't okay. going well. Okay. Yeah, okay. Not good. Late May 1929, Margaret meets with a real estate broker to look at a spacious apartment at 68th and Park Avenue. It's for sale at the price of $58,000. <laughs> Wait, no way. $58,000. That's about $950,000 in today's money. Yeah. 68th and Park. That would now would still be in the millions, though, I feel like that. Piece oh, it's going to be way over in the millions. Yeah. Yeah. OK. OK. Margaret wants this apartment. She wants to buy it and she plans to make four thousand dollars worth of renovations or decor to the apartment. And when push comes to shove and it was time to cough up some money for the apartment, she declined to see the agents again and said that she couldn't pay for the apartment. Hmm. So she's a little bit all over the place. OK. She's a little bit all over the place. A month later, Lewis Bennison is in rehearsals for the leading role of This Thing Called Love. It's scheduled to open on June 10th at a theater in Brooklyn. Mm. And in the last week of rehearsals, however, Lewis was drinking so heavily that he repeatedly failed to show up and the director finally fired him. Uh-oh. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. And there were reports at the Lambs Club that Margaret and her lover, Lewis, were, quote, on the cuff. End quote, which meant they were ex- they were extended credit from people 
and their careers are collapsing and they're drinking their troubles away and they're getting credit from people? Or did they drink their troubles away and that's what caused their career to collapse? Or was it the other way around? They're borrowing money. Hard to know. Regardless, they were sometimes living the high life in a really nice apartment and sometimes they were sharing a room. At the Lambs Club. Oh. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit about the Lambs Club. Okay. It was established Christmas week of 1874 and incorporated in 1877. It is considered the oldest professional theatrical organization in America. I have friends who go there with their famous actor friends, friends. that they're doing shows with that are a part of the Lambs. Okay. Well, it's named after essayist Charles Lamb and his sister Mary, and members of the Lambs were involved in the formation of the Actors Fund of America, ASCAP, Actors Equity, the Screen Actors Guild, and SAG-AFTRA. So well, these all are the, of the unions that exist. All of the and unions the funds and everything. came yeah. out of the Lambs Club. Cool. Since its founding, there have been more than 6,700 lambs, including such greats as Fred Astaire, Irving Berlin, George M. Cohen, W.C. Fields, Ken Howard, Will Rogers, John Philip Sousa, Spencer Tracy, thousands more. It's like you're about to go into 76 trombones. (laughs) (laughs) Just naming all the random people. (laughs) Membership is by invitation only and has to come from a member in good standing. Yep. But these two have moved back to a penthouse apartment that Margaret actually rents. October 1928, Margaret leases a penthouse at 34 East 51st Street. And then she sublets it to a Mr. and Mrs. Dunscombe of Englewood, New Jersey. In the summer of 1929, the Dunscombes move out and Margaret moves back in and brings with her... Her boyfriend, Lewis. That guy. Hmm. But by this time, these two have been living together for a year, and Lewis has basically deserted his wife and child. His friends said that he was very possessive of Margaret. Mm -hmm. He was really possessive of her. She is beautiful, and I will post pictures of her in the in-laws and outlaws group. But around the same time, Margaret tells Lewis that she's leaving him. Oh. Can't tie her down for long. Now, maybe she realizes that he's no good for her or they're no good for each other. You know, it's a codependent relationship. Mm -hmm. But when she tells him she wants out, he threatens to kill her. He pulls out one of the many cowboy pistols he has and says, quote, if you do, I will kill you. This will account for us both. Wow. End quote. He's like, hold, he's brandishing a gun and saying, Is this, it a real gun or is it, it is a, a pro- It okay. is a real gun. They didn't have prop guns. It's oh. a real gun. Yikes. Okay. If you do, I will kill you. This will account for us both. End quote. In late May, Margaret's friend Gertrude Schaller, who was said to have had a lifelong friendship with Margaret, she was witness to Lewis's latest outburst when Margaret wants to leave him. And because of that, Margaret gives her friend Gertrude a key to the penthouse apartment and says, quote, look in on us every once in a while. Keep your eye on us, end quote. This is the equivalent of when your friend goes on a Tinder date and you also go to the restaurant and sit at the other side of the room just to, like, watch and make exactly. sure nothing scary happens. Exactly, exactly. Margaret calmed Lewis down, got him to put the gun away, and Gertrude left without taking Margaret with her, even though she wanted Margaret to come with her to Long Island. That's where Gertrude lives. And she's like, come with me to Long Island, because she did live with Gertrude for a little bit 
after Actors Equity said, hey, we're suspending you for six months. Mm. And she kind of was like in this deep depression. And Mm -hmm. Gertrude sweeps in and says, come on, come to Long Island with me. And that's what she does. Well, thanks, Gertie. Gertrude returns the following Saturday evening. And when Gertrude arrives at the penthouse, Lewis meets her at the door. She knocks on the door. Lewis meets her at the door and tells her that, quote, Margaret doesn't want to see you anymore. Uh End quote. He lies. He does lie. He lies like a fly. (laughs) But he doesn't want her in the apartment. He doesn't want her friend to come into the apartment. Did you miss that? No, I... I heard you say that, but now I'm I'm catching up to what that actually means. Yeah. Margaret doesn't want to see you anymore. This is what Lewis is saying to her best friend. Yeah. Go away. Margaret doesn't want to see you. Oh, no. Then on Sunday, June 9th, in the penthouse apartment at 34 East 51st Street, Gertrude's been trying to get in touch with Margaret all day long. And I read where she told police that she was just on edge all mm. day. Gertrude knew these two liked to party. And she was worried because he had guns and he was possessive of her and she wanted out. And when 2 p.m. rolled around and she still hadn't reached Margaret, she goes to the apartment. Now, Gertrude uses her pass key, the pass key that Margaret had given to her, and she lets herself into this dark apartment. Gertrude's going to tell police that she was calling out, hello, Margaret, hello, Margaret, dear. She called out to her, and she looks around, and she can tell that something bad has happened. She just feels it in her bones, and she finds her friend Margaret in bed. She's clad in a silk chemise, and she's lying on her back with her eyes closed as if she's in a deep peaceful slumber. Hmm. Oh, no. Gertrude's heart races. She leans in and slowly tries to shake Margaret awake. And then she stops and draws back when she notices that there's a small, dark circle on Lawrence's left breast over her heart. Oh, no. (gasps) She staggers backwards, and Gertrude sees a large red stain on the sheets under the body and then lets out a piercing series of screams before she runs out of the apartment to get help. Now, she had been so shocked at the sight of her dead friend, she didn't really soak in the full extent of the horror in the room Mm. right? because she runs out. And when police finally arrive and the curtains are open to let the light in, it was really a gruesome scene. But Gertrude races downstairs. She notifies the superintendent of the building, who then telephones police. And within a few minutes, the quiet streets filled with all the police cars, all the newspaper guys, and a crowd of curious people. I'm sure. Mm. Detectives Frank Rail and Martin Hastings were the first two on the scene. And remember, I said, Margaret's in a silk chemise. And this is what the police report said. She was in a silk chemise. Her chestnut hair fell gracefully around her cold face. And the fatal bullet had passed from her heart through her twin bed and embedded itself in the floor. Wow. Mm. On the other side of the bed was another body. A middle-aged man frozen in a bizarre death pose. His knees are on the floor as if he's praying and his head and torso are resting against the side of the bed. He's been shot in the heart. It was 45-year-old Louis Bennison. Whoa. Oh, God, he Romeo Julieted. He group sued. He did. Now, while the city's newspapers theorize the deaths may have been the grisly result of a suicide pact, mm-hmm. detectives quickly deemed it a murder-suicide. Yeah. Bennison, they said, had shot Lawrence straight in the heart and then turned the gun on himself. 
The rooftop apartment they shared looked very shabby. It was unkempt. It was an unhappy home littered with empty bottles of bootleg rye that reeked with the stench of failure and despair. Wow. There were empty ginger ale bottles and whiskey. And the time of death is estimated at dawn that morning, meaning they drank through the night. And by that morning, she had passed out. He killed her and then killed himself. Wow. Oh, my God. By the bedside were two notes. One was scribbled on the back of an envelope, and it said, quote, the sunset has a heart. Look for us there, end quote. Mm. The other note was on white paper and said, quote, please notify Mr. Munson at the Lambs Club at once, end quote. So the first note, the sunset has a heart. Look for us there. That was in Margaret's handwriting. Yeah. The other note was from Lewis. Please notify Mr. Munson at the Lambs Club at once. Mm. Now, Bennett Munson was an author and actor. He'd written a play with Lewis. And when Bennett Munson arrived at the apartment, he identified the revolver used in the double shooting as Lewis's because his initials were on the handle, L.B. Mm. And the actor, according to Munson, was subject to frequent fits of despondency. And about two years ago at the Lambs Club, he had threatened to kill himself after a night of heavy drinking. Oh, no. And on that occasion, Mr. Munson said that his pistol was taken away from Lewis. So that was two years ago. Yeah. So this guy's been knucking futs for two years while his career's going down the tubes and he's losing his hair and nothing's going right for him. Oh, God. By the time the bodies were moved to the morgue, there were even more people outside the building watching. And what detectives put in the report is that they find Margaret in her bed with her arms folded across her chest in her little chemise. And Lewis is fully dressed except for his shoes and socks. And he's on the floor in this praying position with his head resting on the edge of the bed. The revolver was beside Margaret on her side of the bed toward the wall where the detective said it, quote, might have fallen if he had shot himself while standing above Margaret. When the autopsy is done, Dr. Thomas Gonzalez said that there were powder burns on the clothing of both victims, which indicated that the shots were fired at close range. So, like, straight to, straight the, to yeah. the heart. Yeah, okay. Dr. Gonzalez also theorizes that Margaret was murdered while she was asleep, and police also think that the sunset note had nothing to do with the shooting, that it wasn't a suicide note or anything like that. But it just became hauntingly poetic. It yeah. did become hauntingly poetic. Then dead. Yeah. In another room, detectives find a trunk that belongs to Lewis, and they learned from employees at the apartment building that he had been living with Margaret for several months. And then Saturday night, after Gertrude called, they said that Lewis went out and then he returned between 11 p.m. and midnight. Police were unable to find anyone in the apartment house who had heard the shots that morning. A man named William Fonstark Jr., who was the son of a banker and occupied the penthouse beside Margaret's, was not at home that morning. Now, detectives go Mm. through all the things in the apartment, and what they find is $900 in cash among Lewis's things. And at the Lambs Club, of which he was a member, an employee said that he'd been drinking a great deal for the past two days. The night before, he borrows a dollar from a bellboy while he's completely schnockered. Several hours after the discovery of the double shooting, a woman who said that she was Lewis Benison's wife telephones the Lambs Club to ask if the news of her husband's death is true. That's how she found out that her husband (gasps) is dead. Oh, wow. Wait. Oh, my God. I forgot he was still married. He is still married and has a child. Oh, no. She has a daughter, right? He still has a child. Oh, God. 
And Margaret Lawrence's mother, who lived in Germantown, Pennsylvania, was notified and told that she needed to come pick up Margaret's body. And in fact, she would. She would in the next couple of days. Now, nobody knows what prompted Lewis to carry out this threat. The papers wasted no time in moralizing on the actors' sorry lives and sordid deaths and an inevitable final act straight out of a B-movie melodrama. (laughs) (laughs) The sensational scandal made national headlines for days, and it sent two families and the theatrical communities of both New York and San Francisco reeling with disbelief. So you can imagine. It's yeah. a small world. Yeah. Sure. It's a very small world on Broadway. It's a very small world even for film actors. And no one could believe it. Some reports called it murder. Others speculated that the two had agreed upon that murder-suicide pact. Lewis's comments to Margaret in Gertrude's presence and her decision to remain in the penthouse seemed to suggest that she was, like, okay to stay. But the New York Police Department could determine neither a motive for the shooting of Margaret nor for her possible agreement in a suicide pact. So the police are saying, okay, everybody's going to say this. Right. Mm -hmm. We have no evidence to this. Yeah. Sure. Because she had said, she told Gertrude, here's the thing. She says, I want to leave him. She told him she wanted to leave him. And Margaret's attorney comes forward and says that only days before she dies, she has been asking him to help her explore the possibility of going to California and making a talking picture. So she's ready to, like, switch from Broadway Mm. To go to California, she's going to start a new life and do talking pictures. And leave him behind. And leave him behind. Right. Now, Lewis's family is also devastated. They didn't understand any of this either. And during his recent visit, remember, he was home like two weeks before this happens. God. They sensed that nothing was wrong. And his wife, Frances, in fact, claimed that she suspected nothing about her husband's relationship to Margaret Lawrence. Quote, We knew they were friendly, end quote, she told the press, but I considered it only a stage association, end quote. Oh. Not a showman's, Haley. No. Which I think is, yeah, which I think is her saving face because it was reported that she would not give him a divorce. So. Oh, I see. Did she know? Did she not know? Well, that's true. That's true. What we do know is that Andrew, Lewis's brother, who ended up being an executive at Fox Films, took his nephew under his wing and raised him. Now, as Mm. for Margaret's legacy, well, instead of being known as the comedic actress that she was, she's been immortalized as the pitiful victim of her own weaknesses. That's what was said in the New York Daily News about her. A New York Daily News columnist wrote, quote, And Benison is dead, the victim of the cheaper actor's ego, a weak stomach, and the sort of liquor prohibition has provided. It would all be very pathetic if it were not so very common and so very unnecessary. End quote. Oh, my God. So it is prohibition. Yeah, I know you. You said bootlegged uh, rye. uh, Rye. Bootlegged rye. Then I remembered. Oh, yeah. We outlawed alcohol in this country for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I forgot. So it was was all bootlegged liquor. So, you know, there were people who were jumping on that. Plus, they were actors. Yeah. Yeah. So, and if you don't understand somebody's way of life, I mean, how could they, like, travel and do this and do that? And, you know, she Mm -hmm. had a husband who she left for another actor who she left for another actor. Yeah, she's just trying to, like, live her life. And he had left his wife for her. So it's all very muddled and not very clear. Right. Not but- to mention it's 1929. So 
But nobody <laughs> deserves to die. Nope. Nobody no. deserves to be shot like that, especially when it seems like she had plans. Right. I don't know that he had plans. She had plans. I think he took her with him because he was so possessive of her. Well, yeah, I was, I mean, I was thinking that if he had known that she was planning on leaving or going to California and he wanted to keep her with him forever. And he also was off his rocker a little bit. Yeah. No, I think he was off his rocker. But even if she wants to go to California, he can go back to California with her. He's got a wife His family's there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's worlds colliding. Mm. So nothing was going right for Mm. Lewis. And that was apparently his out. Yeah. And after he had talked about it for two years, he not only took himself, but he took her with him. Margaret is buried in Ivy Hill in Philadelphia, and Lewis was cremated and returned to his family in San Francisco. So what's the lesson here? God. You know, it's almost like show business is hard. Show business is hard. It's a hard life. It's not for everybody. Beware of the possessive boyfriend. But that's true whether you're on Broadway or in movies or not, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. Right. Of course. I mean, it can be very disorienting to be in the public eye all the time. And, you know, everyone has an opinion about you. They don't know you and they have an opinion about you. That's so weird. Well, and not only that, but in 1929, it wasn't the it wasn't the the National Enquirer. Mm. I mean, you know, saying that you had three heads and five alien babies at home. (laughs) It, It was it was the New York Post. Right, saying this these was, horrible things right. about you. Yeah, this is hard hitting journalism. Was this coming was hard hitting journalism? Yeah. So in one breath, you're this amazing comedic actress, and in another breath, you're done. You got taken down by mm. booze, and you know well, it's just a tragic also, tale. There, there's sort of the first generation of superstars: Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin. All of these mm-hmm. people were all at the same time. And if yes, you know, Lewis was trying wanting, to be that, trying to be a star, but he and wasn't. He couldn't do that. Yeah, on stage. Yeah. Or screen. Yeah. But I think she was. I think she was getting great reviews, but Mm. got reeled in with the wrong man. But that is the true story of Broadway stars Margaret Lawrence and Louis Benison. And we can only hope that the sunset really has a heart. But that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners. This is Chris Calvert. I love doing research and writing about real crimes, but I also love writing about fictional people who commit horrible atrocities. When you're ready to take a break from true crime for fictional crime, go to chriscalvert.com where you'll find all my books, including some free ones to get you started. Jane Doe is one badass chick who quietly hunts terrorists in the United States. The Sex and Lies books are all FBI and CIA cases with a little romance on the side. And coming summer 2022, book 10 in the series, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll, releases. You can find all of these books everywhere, and if you like to listen instead of read, you can find them all on Audible. So go grab a free book or take a listen. I love all the characters I've written. I've given them pain, ruin their lives, make them suffer, and maybe even throw in a heroic death. Or maybe they live to fight another day. Check it all out at chriscalvert.com. And thanks for being a listener of Hitched to Homicide. Okay, so every week we like to end with something a little more lighthearted. Bless your heart. Aww, Aww, sweet. (laughs) And we thought we would give Haley honorary 
honorary honors to do this week's Bless Your Heart. So take it away. Well, bless your heart. All right. Dateline NYC. When Nadav Nirenberg lost his iPhone in the back of a cab on New Year's Eve, the 27-year-old Brooklyn musician called it multiple times, hoping to recover the device. Despite leaving messages promising a reward, it became clear his iPhone was in the hands of someone who had no intention of giving it back. (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) Worse, Nirenberg soon realized the thief had logged into his dating profile on (laughs) OkCupid and was hitting on women. Oh, no. Quote, not only is he stealing my phone, Nirenberg recalled of the thief in a post on his blog, he's creepy and disturbing. You think? So he decided to catch the thief using the power of seduction. (laughs) So just give him a a little bit of his own medicine, I guess. I guess. Power of seduction. All right. (laughs) Nirenberg created a fake OkCupid account pretending to be Jennifer, a 24-year-old woman who had recently moved to the area and was looking for love. (laughs) Go ahead, Jennifer. (laughs) Jennifer struck up an online conversation with the thief. I used lots of winks and smiley faces so I would seem like a girl. God. So I would seem like a girl, um, Nirenberg told the New York Post. And after a couple of hours of online flirting, suggested they meet for a glass of wine. Nice. The thief's screen name is Sam I Am Not. <laughs> uh, Nirenberg directed the thief to his apartment for a 7 p.m. rendezvous. Oh, wow. like to his whole house. I, know, I don't think I would do that. Well, but okay. a real woman would not do that. That's true. That's how you know it's <laughs> yeah, not that's, real. That's how you this know is it's totally a guy thing. Yeah, that's yeah, really yeah, yeah. Okay. a guy thing. So for a 7 p.m. rendezvous where the punctual criminal soon appeared, quote, clean shaven, doused in cologne and holding a bottle of wine. <laughs> nice. Ooh, I can smell the cologne, I feel like. It's X. Sorry, yeah. X. We love yeah. you, X. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> but, uh, quote, he was ready for a date, Nirenberg told the Post. But that changed quickly when Nirenberg, armed with a large hammer, what? tapped the thief on the shoulder, handed him $20 as a peace offering, and asked for his phone back. Oh if, you bring, if you bring a hammer to a date, yeah. something's yeah. up. He said, give me the phone, and nobody gets hurt. Nobody gets hurt. Yeah, not a, not a great way to start a date. No. Nirenberg described the man as a small Indian dude and said he thinks he was his <laughs> New Year's Eve cab driver. <laughs> After handing over the phone, the thief hurried off in shame, but not before Nirenberg told him, you smell great, though. (laughs) Nirenberg has since updated his online dating profile with an acknowledgement. Sorry if you've received weird messages from this account. (laughs) I've been hacked. Bless his heart. Bless his heart. Bless his little heart. Well, if you have a good bless your heart, be sure to send it to us. You can email me, Chris, at hitchtohomicide.com. And we'd love to feature it. Absolutely. (laughs) That's all we have for this week. We're so glad that you joined us again. That's my hubby over there. And that's my beautiful bride. And that's my gorgeous daughter, Haley Fish. Thank you for joining us today. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye.